It's September 5th, 2022. This is Rook. Hi there, welcome to episode 198 of Rook. Happy September, happy Labor Day if you're in a part of the world as we are celebrating Labor Day. I'm Gian Gomeshi, nice to be talking to you. Hope you're keeping well wherever you're tuning in from around the world. Hello to you from Toronto, Canada. Salam Dustan Aziz, Dur Sad Sal Bin Salha. Coming up in about an hour, one of the world's leading designers who has dedicated his life to creating and implementing the most luxurious weddings, palaces, castles, private and social events across the globe, Ali Behnam Bakhtiar, uh, a very prominent Iranian-French architect, founder of uh, Ali Bakhtiar Designs. He's got multiple offices in different parts of the world. He is known, Apegajun, for making the impossible possible. Wow. Yes. Should you be planning a wedding? Not anytime soon. <laughs> <laughs> well, should you be planning a wedding? Yes. He's uh, he's your man. Uh, he's going to be joining us from Slovenia. He is. He also has a royal lineage. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, you knew this? I didn't. Oh, okay. You said it. You were like, mm-hmm, as if you knew <laughs> what I was saying. He, But check it out. He's got a royal lineage from both the Pahlavi and Gajar. Very cool. Dynasties. <laughs> Covering the bases. <laughs> Full house, yeah. No, no word on the Safavi or uh, <laughs> <laughs> what comes before that. that that's <laughs> the only one missing. <laughs> uh, joining us from Slovenia. Um, I oh. wonder what he's up to there. Before that, in a few minutes, um, an Iranian-American pioneer when it comes to the research and treatment of autism disorders. She's a doctor and psychologist who founded the Center for Autism and Related Disorders. In 1990, she founded this. Uh, it's gone on to become one of the world's largest organizations that provides interventions for the treatment of autism spectrum disorders. She has a remarkable story of her own, does such vital work, and she's now on social media doing a uh, Ask Dr. Doreen segment. Dr. Doreen Grand-Pichet will join us from Los Angeles. This is a really impressive person in our diaspora. You know, we bring people on for all kinds of reasons. Today, full of impressive people. Yeah. Impressible people. I don't know if they're impressive. <laughs> they're impressive. Uh, hi to you, Smart Pega. Hello. Hello, Groovy Shy. Hi, Aziza. It occurs to me that on Labor Day, you know, officially... Summer ends on September 21st, right? That's the autumn solstice. Uh-huh, yes. But don't you feel like today is the end of summer? Th- this yes. weekend. Or yesterday. Yeah. Uh, yes, I agree. Like, it's it's fall already. Yeah. And here in Toronto, it really switches. Yeah. <laughs> like, it just, like, September yeah. 1st came and it was, like, Sweaters chilly nights. And, yeah, it was yeah. really weird, actually. <laughs> yeah, yeah, Saturday was warm, like, humid, warm. But yeah. Yesterday was mm-hmm. like, It's chilly. almost overnight. Yeah. It's, like... Flick yeah. of a switch. Then it gets warm again for a few weeks and, or a couple of weeks somewhere in yeah, mid-September or something. Tease. It teases you. But for <laughs> sure, it feels like fall is beginning. Yes. And I would guess 
is this the case in Iran? Like that, you know, September um, in the West, like in, in, you know, Canada and the U.S., and it's all back to school. Mm-hmm. That's the yeah. that's what, you know, commerce and, 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 yes. and sales and all that are predicated upon the idea. Of, that's the same, I would exactly. imagine, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's a summer break, and then... Yes, so yes. is this the weekend that, that students um, start going back to school? Actually, September 21st, they go to school. Oh. Yeah. Oh. Honoring the first uh, day yes, of fall. Yes, yes. Huh. That's, that's that's a big what do they do for the first week, three weeks of September? <laughs> they just party. Bikar. Bikar. <laughs> yeah, they're just partying for the end of summer. The, I'm talking about 12-year-olds. <laughs> <laughs> also, also <laughs> just partying. <laughs> but I think they, um, in Iran, don't they finish school later than us yeah. here? The beginning of summer, they finish schools. and uh, Like end of June? End of June, yeah. That's the same. Is it? Yeah. They just go to less school. Well. These Iranians running around. <laughs> they get more time off. <laughs> uh, we're coming to you on rookmedia.com. It's there that you can link to all of our platforms. We are on our ongoing mission to build a new audiovisual encyclopedia of Iranian diaspora identity. We're on Spotify, SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, Instagram, and Castbox. If you'd like to see some visuals with Rook, switch over to YouTube right now. And if you like your Rook descriptions at bulletins in English and in Persian, check us out on Telegram. Um, by the way, our uh, speaking of YouTube, our documentary, the first of our travel series, Talking to Persians, Talking to Persians London is now on YouTube in its third week, over 35,000 views. We invite you to check it out. Uh, it also has subtitles, um, Talking to Persians London at our YouTube channel. Uh, that's the Rook Media YouTube channel. And if you go to our website, rookmedia.com, you can support us by becoming a patron. You know, I was talking on the weekend to a couple of friends about how I really appreciate the people who are patrons of this mm-hmm. show. We have some folks who are, you know, each each month they they donate a little bit. They you know subscribe. They they are patrons, and um, we never do anything for them. We got to change that. Yes, we should. I was I I feel like a a heel. I feel terrible. <laughs> I mean, I should like be sending them messages or calling out their names or you know making little figurines i don't know yeah you know yeah. having them for some chai <laughs> yeah these are the people this is our bread and butter these yeah. these these wonderful folks who don't who, who are part of our patron base rookmedia.com i promise you we're going to figure something out for you guys um shia you could do a little i was the dance. first patron so you, have you to were do you, I, I, should, I need to do something for you <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah shia start with shia <laughs> Uh, speaking of support, a big thank you to Hamid Reza Safi for, for helping to make this episode of Rook get to your eyes and ears. Hamid Safi Poor Luxury Custom Homes. If you're in the Toronto area or if you're an Iranian Canadian, you may know the name Safi Poor. Team Hamid and Nina have made the Safipur name one of the tops in the business, a name you can trust to buy your dream land and build your dream house. Safipur Luxury Homes have now teamed up with Remax, and they're moving into also doing exotic high-rises that are beyond things we've seen in Toronto before. If you're thinking to buy or sell or build your dream house, if you're anywhere near the Toronto area or are interested in buying here, get in touch with Safipur. S-A-F-I-P-O-O-R.com, Safipur.com. Thank you to Hamid Safipur for being a sponsor. Okay, so before we get to our first guest today, I, I wanted to 
uh, take a moment to remember, you know, it seems like, um, actually, it seems like in the last month, mm-hmm. uh, I was away and we were, but uh, it seems like we've lost a few oh, yeah. really, really prominent, vital, influential, iconic, yeah. iconic Iranian writers, yes. poets and writers. Yes. Um, the latest of which, I mean, who have we, who have we go ahead, who have we lost, Shad? Yeah, last month we lost Hushang Ebtahaj. Yes. He's a um, he's a great poet, and uh, I think in the spectrum of uh, Iranian mm-hmm. poets, uh, I would put him next to like Hafez and Sadi. Wow, you know, yeah. he's really a big deal. And uh, and so, like last week, we lost uh, Abbas Marufi. Uh, yeah, and I, I wanted to remember him because. You know, a, a part of our mission for this show is we're talking to we're talking to Iranians around the world, and a lot of them, like me and you, Paga, like mm-hmm. we're we're second or third generation um, Iranians. So we've we grew up in the West. Actually, I'm always confused about whether I'm first generation or second generation. If my parents came here, mm-hmm. but anyway, I'm somebody who grew <laughs> up mostly schooled in English, born right. in the West, etc. I don't. We don't always know. Uh, I know who Abbas Marufi is. In mm-hmm. fact, we had been trying to book him, yes. but I I know him because I've gone into the the and done the research and learned about Persian mm-hmm. literature, etc. But it wasn't a name I grew up with knowing, and yet. Um, for many Iranians, uh, certainly inside Iran, he was a, a star, a superstar, mm-hmm. and and many in the diaspora. For those who don't know him, um, first of all, what happened this past week? He was a pretty young man. He was yeah, like 65 years old. Yeah, he was 65 years old. Yeah. Years old. Um, he um, was diagnosed with lymphatic cancer, I mm. think, uh, summer of 2019. Um, and uh, he heroically battled it, and unfortunately he passed away last week, Thursday, I think it mm. was, September 1st. Now, we knew he wasn't doing well because we had reached out to him a couple of times. Mm-hmm. There's people on our team who know him, and, and he'd said he'd love to come on the show, but he wasn't feeling well. Yeah. Uh, unfortunately, the, it, you know, it obviously he really wasn't feeling mm-hmm. well. Um, Pega, give us a sense of, um, of why Abbas Marufi was important. Mm-hmm. Um, I think, you know, most people will remember him as a remarkable author, playwright, poet, publisher, and journalist. Um, but I think, honestly, he was so much more than that. Um, from what I've heard from a lot of different people, he was a man of the people, for lack of better words. Um, he was, you know, very influential in the world, world of literature. Mm. Um, he was very helpful to a lot of up-and-coming writers and both inside and outside of Iran he really really tried to build on that community of authors and you know work within the community of literature um, he studied at the Faculty of Fine Arts in Tehran University he went on to um, create a publishing house in Tehran called Gardun if I'm not mm. mistaken um, and then he went on to actually create um, a literary magazine right. under the same name. And funny enough, I watched an interview with him, um, and he had said that that was actually a childhood dream of his mm. to one day, you know, be the editor um, of a magazine. So he mm. went on to fulfill that. And the way you know, I know, for example, um, uh, Mer Dodd and, and other folks who um, are in our broader Rook Media team have talked about how. You know they love his works mm-hmm. and have you know, over the years known this um, this great uh, writer. But it was interesting to me that, uh, for example, Parry saw a Super P on mm-hmm. our group, uh, on our group, on our team, um, <laughs> who's you know mid late twenties. She said 
uh, last week when she she was very upset mm-hmm. at the passing of Abbas Marufi and said she had said to me like this is my David Bowie you wow. know knowing that Bowie was my idol of all right. all time uh, and said that he Abbas Marufi was her inspiration for getting into wanting to read literature etc mm-hmm. so his impact the impact that this man had is pretty widespread oh, yeah. generational gender you know etc crossing all those lines for sure um, and Shia you were a, a fan obviously yourself yes yes actually um, since we talked about like changing season there is a part in his famous book the symphony or the gone symphony of the dead yes yeah. uh, that uh, he's describing uh, you know kalak crew crew mm-hmm. yes is this in, in persian culture is a symbol of uh, winter like winter is coming mm. and so the story happens in uh, in one of the Azari cities in Iran, and the voice of Kala a crow is Qar Qar in hmm. in f- w- what's in English, the sound of ca- crow. The, the cr- a crow, I guess. I, d- I don't know. <laughs> I, I, a coo maybe like I don't know what the sound of a crow mm-hmm, would so. uh, in, the written form of the sound of a crow. <laughs> this is this is where the the Persian the divide of, of, of the, the level of poetry yeah, advanced exactly. poetry in Iran. The crow has a sound. sound what is it in English? Yeah. I have no idea. So yeah. this uh, it is qar qar, and in Azari actually qar means snow means barf. Oh, wow. So when Kalak says Qar, Qar, it's like barf, mm-hmm. barf, it's winter is coming. And it's always stuck in my mind, this picture of mm. Qar, Qar, wow. Kalak. Yeah. I mean, the other thing that Abbas Marufi um, became well known uh, for, unfortunately, too, was that he was um, no friend of the current uh, government or regime, mm-hmm. uh, or they were no friend of his. Yes. Um, what, what happened? So um, I think it was as early as 1993, um, he was sentenced to um, imprisonment, flogging, um, and there was a ban on his publication. So the publishing house, his magazine, everything. Um, And there was an immense amount of international pressure. And actually with the help of um, the German Writers Association and a very famous German author by the name of Gunter Grass, um, all of those um, sentences were suspended. And it was then actually that uh, he managed to leave Iran and and move to Germany. So how available was um, Abbas Marufi's works now in in more recent years in Iran? Honestly, I don't know. I mean, I guess if Parisa had read them all and she was in Mashhad, you know, yeah, I, she would have had access to them. Yeah, and I, I know that some of his book actually is banned right now. But mm-hmm. but again, I, I don't have a very legit right. idea. Yeah, I would imagine with you know the internet age, it's yes. easier to yes, yeah. people acquire, find things. Yeah, yeah for yeah. sure. Yeah. Rolling Stones records, <laughs> actually probably not Rolling Stones, Pink Floyd records. Uh, <laughs> Definitely Pink Floyd. <laughs> um, well, uh, a, a tremendous loss. Very um, much so. Oh yes, yeah. Abbas Marufi. And, and actually, one more thing I just want to say about yeah. uh, about Abbas Marufi. When I was kind of looking into um, you know his works and and reading a little bit about him, because like you said, I I grew up here and that was not a name that I was very mm-hmm. familiar with, but had kind of heard it. And with the news of his passing, 
you know, started to read up a little bit more. And um, there was a couple of things that really spoke to me, even though I haven't read some of his works. There was um, a book that I found. Um, it's called The Year of Turmoil. And actually, Paisa and I talked about this, and she was kind of telling me about it as well. Um, Sole Balvo, I think it is mm-hmm. in Farsi, yes. if I'm not mistaken. The Year of Bal- Balvo. That, that's what I said, but that <laughs> means turmoil. So it's uh. The Year of Turmoil. Um, and apparently, so he's he's obviously a man, and he had written this book through the viewpoint of a woman. Mm. So the entire book is written as if he's thinking about, you know, being a woman and seeing life through the eyes of a woman. And I found that fascinating because especially at the time that he wrote this, this was not something that was very common and definitely mm. not within Iranian literature. So I just, I found him fascinating and truly, it's such what's a What's that saying you know, we've been saying to you? What's his famous saying? Yes. So that, Do you know it? Yeah. So um, famously, he wrote in Farsi, mm-hmm. um, which loosely translates to um, a defeat is only pointless if it's reached without putting up a fight. Right. It's kind of it's kind of saying keep fighting. Yes. Exactly. But he doesn't mean physical fighting, does he? What is what is the where did that quote originate from? Um, <laughs> fighting the regime? Yes, yeah. like uh, fighting censorship. Right, right. Mm-hmm. Uh, rest in peace, Abbas Marufi. Um, thanks, guys. Thanks for that uh, little remembrance. And um, uh, I'm sure uh, there's a lot of folks out there for whom he uh, was a big figure in their lives um, and an influential presence. And by all means, let us know about that. If you have stories or remembrances of Abbas Marufi, uh, info at rookmedia.com would be where to share. Yeah, I think it, it's a good idea to uh, have an episode about like authors in exile. Yes. You know, like mm-hmm. we lost Reza Barahani, Barahani we yeah, like yeah. Muhammad Ali and Odushan, we lost yeah. uh, Abbas Marufi, yeah, and so all people there in exile. So yeah. I think, it, yeah. Yeah. Uh, thanks, guys. We'll see you on the other side of our featured guest, our first featured guest, that is. Let's get to it. I know she's uh, waiting on the line. Uh, my first featured guest today is an Iranian-American psychologist who has gained global recognition for dedicating her life to the field of autism research and therapy. Dr. Doreen Grandpichet founded CARD, the Center for Autism and Related Disorders, one of the world's largest organizations that provides interventions for the treatment of autism spectrum disorders. Dr. Doreen was born in Tehran. Her father was an advisor to the Shah's Ministry of Finance. They migrated to the United States, of course, after the Islamic Revolution of 1979. She obtained her PhD in psychology from UCLA. She's also a board-certified behavior analyst and is licensed by the Medical Boards of California, Texas, Virginia, and the Arizona State Boards of Psychologists. Dr. Doreen is the 2011 recipient of the American Academy of Clinical Psychiatrists' prestigious Winokur Award. And right now, Dr. Doreen Grandpichet joins me from Los Angeles today. Hello. Hello. Very nice to meet you. What a great pleasure it is to have you on the program. And and what an amazing journey you've had. You've done such impressive things. Thank you for doing this. Oh, thank you very much. It's my honor to be here. You're known as a leading autism expert, you're a well-known psychologist. Uh, as a kid growing up in Iran, did you have any sense that this would be your path? You know, honestly, no, I did not. But, you know, as most uh, uh, kids would either, like, I remember my parents always saying, okay, you need to go into the health sciences. You know, they wanted me to be a doctor, of course. 
And originally I was going to study medicine and it just so happened that uh, very early on, you know, I was at UCLA for 12 years. So I actually had all of my degrees, my bachelor's, master's and doctorate there. And I just met uh, uh, the professor who was working in the field of autism. And it was so interesting to me that I switched fields and stayed in autism for the rest of my uh, career. Yeah, I mean, you've become quite a public person in terms of being at the forefront of this. Was that always in the cards, the card, if you will? Did you, did you, would somebody have guessed when you were, you know, 12 years old in Tehran that, that you're going to become somebody who's known by others? No, not at all. In fact, even now, I often feel kind of very um, strange about it when, when I, when people recognize my name or, you know, when I get noticed that uh, someone has published something about the work that I did or whatever, it always surprises me because you, I never really think of myself as being someone that others know. Mm. Uh, you know, you just kind of go about doing your thing and you enjoy the work that you're doing and and uh, hopefully it, it influences people. Well, you have influenced people. You've, in fact, I, I dare say you've had, you've had quite an impact on the world. You famously founded CARD, this Center for Autism and Related Disorders. You did so in 1990, mm-hmm. uh, and it became one of the largest organizations in the world, as I said, providing interventions towards the treatment of autism spectrum disorders. What, um, Dr. Doreen, what was your mission in founding that center originally? Well, thanks for asking about that. Um, you know, I the years that I was going to school at UCLA, I um, had the privilege of meeting um, some families who were who had children with autism. And the UCLA clinic that I worked at was more of a research clinic. So a lot of the kids that came to our uh, clinic, we were trying out different types of interventions and. You know, Jean, this is back in, let's say, the 80s. And at that point, the, the prominent belief in the field of autism was that, hey, we don't really know what's going on with these children, but perhaps it has something to do with uh, their mothers treating them in a cold way. It was called the refrigerator mother theory, which was presented by a gentleman uh, by the name of Bruno Bettelheim. Fortunately, a lot of parents uh, in that era came back and said, no, this has nothing to do with parenting. And this is more uh, a biochemical type of uh, illness that is causing these children to not learn how to socialize or or interact with others. And they, they are therefore quite isolated. I became fascinated with the kids that I was meeting at our research clinic at UCLA because uh, I don't know, you know, sometimes people know that some percentage of autism, very small percentage, but nevertheless, there is a group of children who are savants, Mm. right? And they have splinter skills that are extremely interesting. Um, I had met a young boy who uh, had an incredible visual memory. So he really could remember pretty much anything that he saw once. In fact, he could, at a very young age, tell us how to go street maps. In those Mm. days, we Mm. didn't have cell phones or, you know, Google Maps or any of that. And uh, this young man had memorized basically all of the streets Mm. and tell you where to go left and right and so on. And so 
to me, it was fascinating because back in the 70s and 80s, uh, we were still trying to tell the world that autism is very different than things like intellectual disability, which right. used to be called mental retardation. Right, right. And it, it, it appeared to me that a lot of the kids that I was meeting were very intelligent, but they couldn't get their skills across. They were limited mm. because they didn't have communication. Mm. And so, uh, you know, when I left UCLA, when I got my doctorate in 1990 and I left, I did actually do a number of other things in those days in the 90s aids was very prevalent and so there was a huge need for psychologists who could help uh patients who were struggling with aids or or their loved ones were struggling mm -hmm. with aids and so i did a little bit of that and and eating disorders were were very prevalent and i did a little bit of that and so on and i Honestly, uh, six or seven months after I had left UCLA, I decided, no, you know, I got to get back into autism. And this is the field that speaks to me. Mm. Um, not only were we developing a lot of really good behavioral techniques that were changing these children, I, we were able to teach them uh, how to speak and how to communicate. And they were just growing so fast. Um, but I also enjoyed working with their parents who were experiencing anxiety and depression. Mm -hmm. And it was an opportunity mm -hmm. to really have an impact on the entire family unit. So, um, yeah, I opened card um, and uh, I wasn't thinking at all that it would be uh, as big as it ended up being. Mm. You know, I, I, there's an anecdote where at one point I was sitting with uh, the second person I hired after myself was um, a, a friend of mine who was actually helping me just billing the patients. And we were sitting and having uh, lunch and she said, you know, it's so exciting. We have already 25 patients and how many patients do you think we will ever have? <laughs> and I said, you know, I don't know. Uh, she happened to be Iranian as well. Her name was Nilu. And I said, you know, I don't know, you know, 25 is a lot. I can't imagine ever having more than like 40 or 50 patients because at that point it had not occurred to me that I can also train other people to be supervisors, right, at, like right, doctors. Right. And so, of course, in the end, it ended up being, you know, I think when I, uh, over the years after I opened 260 clinics and each clinic had between 50 and 100 patients right, so i don't know what right. that is but it was a pretty large number i was going to say it's not it's not a, a, a i mean once you start looking into it it's not a a, a niche disorder i mean you, you've pointed out right. that autism is more common than childhood cancer diabetes and aids yes. combined right. um what do you feel people most need to understand with respect to those dealing with autism Right. So, you know, when, when I started, it wasn't one of the highest, right? Back in the 70s, it was like one in 15,000 children. It has grown exponentially over the last uh, two, three decades. And the only thing that has grown in correlation is environmental toxins. So what, what is very, very, and you know, the prominent scientific theory right now about what causes autism is that uh, these uh, children are struggling with what is called low redox. So they're unable to detoxify from the 
toxins in our environment as rapidly as we do. Mm. Um, autism is not the only chronic illness that has increased. A lot of other chronic illnesses are increasing and they're very correlated to toxicity in our environment. I think what's important for people to understand is that um, autism is, is very, very hard to deal with. It's a huge spectrum. I mean, there are individuals who are severely affected by autism, which means, you know, you'll have an adult who is not toilet trained, who is not able to communicate in any way um, is, and if you're not able to communicate in any way, you can become very aggressive because you're frustrated. And so, uh, you know, that's kind of one end of the spectrum. And then the other end of the spectrum are individuals who are very minimally affected mm. by autism, which basically means they have a hard time reading facial expressions and body language, and therefore they might come across as a little uh, awkward or uncomfortable. And uh, they would also pr potentially have the same diagnosis, right? I think it's important for everyone to be tolerant and patient because we are learning every day more and more about how to help individuals uh, with autism and how to help their families. It is, it's a lifelong thing. It's very, very difficult for the families and only about maybe a quarter to a third of individuals who are very lucky and have the resources to get all the interventions they need, do they, they recover, right? About a quarter of these individuals actually live normal lives. But it takes a lot of uh, therapy and a lot of help to get them there. So, you know, the more patient we are, the better. In what ways do people most misunderstand autism? I think a lot of people think that people with autism have a mental retardation. And that is not necessarily the case. There's a pretty low correlation with uh, mental retardation or what's called now intellectual dis uh, disabilities with, with autism. Uh, it's funny because I just came back from a wedding where a gentleman was at my table and he was telling me that he knows a, an adolescent who has autism and he feels that these individuals should be hospitalized or institutionalized because when they grow up, they become very aggressive. And that is really not true. Mm. Um, you know, there is, when I, with all of my patients, whether they are um, three-year-olds or 20-year-olds, uh, the aggression that you see with, uh, exhibited by an individual who has autism is just a form of communication because they cannot otherwise communicate. Mm. And any one of us, if you were not able to communicate your needs, would, you know, you'd uh, try to grab the things you want. You try to, to push people away when they force you to do things that you don't want to do. So uh, individuals with autism are not aggressive by nature. In fact, they're extremely loving, kind, sweet individuals. And it is only because uh, the environment is very difficult for them to cope with that they perhaps sometimes develop uh, aggression. Mm. You know, I'm thinking about you starting this center back, uh, it would be, what, 32 years ago now. And 
I'm thinking about how much you've talked about how things have changed, both in the percentage of folks dealing with autism, but also in awareness. And one would like to think that it's a, it's a an upwards trajectory of, of of awareness. I mean, there's it's funny doing a little bit of research on you, and there's there's you know video of you on a TV show. I don't know, twenty twenty five years ago, and the hosts are saying, "What is this autism that you speak of?" You know, as if it's uh, you know. But uh, so I feel like I want to believe that there's more awareness, um, tolerance, or understanding, whatever uh, around autism. Uh, at the same time, it always seems like there's myths, there's misunderstandings. It's in the news for people. There's there's bad science. What, where where do you feel that we're at, thirty years after you founded this center, in terms of globally people understanding autism? Yeah, that's a fantastic question. I think there's definitely more awareness because just two reasons, mainly because, okay, the numbers have increased, right? I mean, one in 15,000 and it has just continuously increased every year, every single year. And the last data set was something like one in 44 children now. So it is increasing. When it increases to that extent, there's going to be awareness because you're all, everybody's going to know someone right, who right. has a child with autism, right? So that is a good thing. There's also a lot of awareness because a few years back, uh, an uh, organization was founded called Autism Speaks, and they went to great lengths to provide awareness, which is wonderful. And now there are a lot of companies that are providing treatment, and of course it is uh, in the United States, it is covered by health insurance. There's, there's awareness, but there's also a lot of uh, kind of misunderstanding or myth, let's put it that way. And one of the things that, you know, I, I want to just clarify is that like everything else that is uh, a sensitive matter, when there's a sensitive subject, people tend to become divided and they tend to uh, you know, take, become very, very, uh, feel very strongly about their own point of view. I mean, look at like COVID, for instance, and how that divided everyone, right? With autism, uh, there was very, very early on, there was a bunch of research that was done suggesting that vaccines cause autism. Yeah. And that then caused a lot of people to put up walls against this concept. And some became, you know, anti-vaxxers and pro-vaxxers and all this sort of stuff. Yeah. The truth of the matter is vaccines are one of the many, many toxins that affect us. And it would be impossible for anyone to say it's this toxin or another because there's just so many toxins now. Mm -hmm. If you really think about the number of toxins that affect us, we're talking about almost all of our food. I honestly don't know the numbers in Canada, but in the US, over 98% of our food is genetically modified. Right. You know, we have uh, anyone on, on the sh your show who is older than let's say 40 will remember that we didn't have plastic. We didn't have plastic containers when growing up, you know? And now everything is contained in plastic, which then also causes, it causes its own toxicity. Yeah, the vaccines have increased over the years. Our animals are pretty toxic. They've been given lots of different types of shots. So, uh, and of course, let's not forget how toxic the soil is with all of the pesticides and mm. so on. 
So exposure to toxicity has increased massively. And so that's why a lot of the research right now in autism is very much focused on how do these toxic elements interact with each individual's biochemistry. And if you are, you know, old enough, uh, let's say, and or have a very good redox cycle, then you're going to be more, much less uh, affected by these toxins. But unfortunately, you know, the, many of us are affected by toxins in different ways. There's infertility, for instance, mm. has increased significantly over the past decade. So um, it, I think it's really important that people remain open-minded when it comes to autism because the science is still investigating what has led to this unbelievable increase in prevalence. But sure, when it comes to that, uh, I wasn't even sure if I was going to go there in terms of that, the vaccine question, yeah. and uh, because I'm sure you're tired of uh, having to deal with it or, or or defend it or 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 argue against it. But but you're you're in the camp of there's nothing to that that that's not a that's not well, the I'm, science, right? I, no, no, I'm actually in the camp that for some people it did cause a problem. I think vaccines are one of the toxins mm. that we are exposed to, and it's a matter of which toxin puts you. Over over the load that you can tolerate. Mm. I don't think that, I mean, I've had, I'll be honest with you, I had. I have had families over the years who have shown me videotape of their child before and after their vaccination schedule, like two days before and after, a home video. And you can see there was something going on there. And immediately, a child who's very verbal and so on and so forth is completely isolated. What I'm saying is that it cannot be the only issue. It, it is not the only issue because on its own, vaccines are not necessarily going to put us over the limit of the number of toxins mm. we can tolerate. Mm. The problem is that our environment is so toxic now that uh, our kids are exposed to a multitude of different things even before the age of two. Sure, sure. So th that's why it's really hard to say which toxin it and believe me, it, it'll take years and years. I mean, if you were, if I think the same would probably hold true in Canada, but look at how many Whole Foods stores there are now or organic food type stores, mm -hmm. you know, 10, 15 years ago, that didn't really exist. There right. wasn't a need. Um, here in the US, you go to restaurants and they are they offer you uh, gluten-free and casein-free diets right. at, at restaurants. So, and these are all the types of foods that are very difficult to digest. And, and so therefore, you know, society is changing, but it takes mm. a long time. Although that sometimes things that are labeled organic are not necessarily <laughs> better for exactly. you too. We don't know. I mean, it's, 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 it can get very confusing. Um, for, we have a person on, uh, as part of our team who has an extended family member in Iran whose uh, kid or young person uh, is dealing with autism and has really kind of um, sad uh, reports in terms of the the lack of resources or um, awareness in Iran oh, and dealing yeah. with autism. Do you, what, what can you tell us about, I mean, how much do you know about autism and how it's dealt, dealt with in Iran these days? Yeah. I mean, it's really unfortunate. I guess I would say it's it's how it was here maybe 40 years ago. So it's, first of all, it's, um, there are no resources. So unfortunately there's like, there's no health insurance coverage for treatment, right? And secondly, people are still a little bit, I would say, 
I guess, embarrassed or ashamed if they have a child on the spectrum. So there's a lot of, uh, you know, just kind of not talking about it. Let's keep it quiet. Let's not, let's keep the child home and so on. And of course, with that sort of thing, you're going to have fewer and fewer resources and help and treatment. Right, so right. as long as parents are alive, I think the kids uh, remain at home unless they become older and aggressive. And then unfortunately, it is treated like, you know, as I said, 40 years ago, uh, mental illness in a lot of countries was was treated as as a crime almost. So there is there are those I will say, Jian, I've been contacted by a number of different agencies in Iran who are trying to build something and provide services. But it's very difficult because the type of treatment for autism requires uh, one-to-one therapy. Mm. So it's quite expensive. If you're going to have someone, one person teaching the individual, being with the individual at all times, it's expensive. Mm. And so unless there's public resources like health insurance coverage, which of course we don't even really know the concepts of that in Iran, um, it becomes very unmanageable and difficult. You know, um, Speaking of Iran, you being Iranian, you're doing a program like this and talking to, uh, in, in some cases, um, prominent, accomplished uh, Iranians. Is it's it's always a lesson in how complex and complicated the the journey to get there has been, especially when it comes to Iranians and what's happened in the last fifty years. Uh, um, and and you're no exception. It's quite amazing to me. In an earlier conversation, I was telling you that how, how much you've accomplished and how seemingly well adjusted you are. <laughs> Based on your own story, which one could, as a psychologist, you know, if somebody walked into your your office and said, I'm a 15-year-old kid, I've come to this country without my parents because they're in hiding because there's a revolution back home, um, I'm assuming you would say, well, oh boy, this is, you know, um, you're, you're somebody I'm, I'm going to have to help along here. What was it like for you as a 15-year-old coming to America by yourself? Yeah, thank you for asking that. It's kind of an interesting period of my life. Um, and I, you know, any Iranian, I guess, who was in the States in 78, 79 may have had similar experiences because on the one hand, yes, our families were out of contact. I mean, I literally had no contact with my parents for about a year. Um, because they were in, uh, my mom was in the Iranian army, in the Shah's army, right? So they were um, kind of hiding in our home by the Caspian. But that on its own is very difficult. Yes, I'm 15 and I'm actually about to start university, which was thanks to my strong Iranian education, actually. But yeah, you went to UCLA at the age of 16, by the way, right? Uh, spe- yeah. Spe- yeah, I mean, you're overachieving the overachiever status as, a, as, a, as an well, Iranian. But Honestly, it was just because, you know, we in Iran, we had, um, we just passed certain classes, right? So when I came here and I was supposed to go to 11th grade, I ended up doing 11th and 12th in one year. And then I went to UCLA, so it was pretty early. Um, and yeah, UCLA is a huge place, right? I mean, like, I don't know, at that time, it was probably 30,000 students. And now it's more like 60 or something. And the classes were huge, 400 people per class. And for, uh, for a kid who was, you know, coming from Iran, I didn't know how to support myself, I had to find a job. So I was 
making donuts at North Cafeteria at UCLA. That was my job. I was getting paid $3.25, which is minimum wage back then. Mm. And I couldn't afford a car, so I would bike back and forth from school. Um, and all of that is not so unusual. I guess a lot of American kids also acclimate to that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. The other side, though, that was happening in the 70s, in the late 70s was the hostage crisis had happened, right? Mm-hmm. So Americans were not sure how to deal with us. Mm-hmm. And there was this whole uh, kind of feeling of, are these guys terrorists? You know, who are they? Are they to be trusted or not? And um, more than once I had, you know, eggs thrown at me. And there was, I'd say there was at least a a six month period of time where my friends and I, if anybody asked us where we were from, we'd say Greece, you know, (laughs) because we did not want to be affiliated with the hostage, hostage crisis. Right. And so it was difficult on all all fronts. It really was. But I don't know. I think I mentioned to you in an earlier conversation that I had been in boarding schools when I was four years old Mm -hmm. in England, Mm -hmm. uh, just for a few years. And I think that sort of helped me be tough. Like I had I had tough skin. You know, I I guess I wasn't afraid. I went out there and I found a job. And there were days when. I didn't have money for food, mm-hmm. um, but I managed somehow and um, got through it. And on the other side, success and being able to have build myself and my kids a good life was even more rewarding. On a, on a psychological level, how did yeah. you deal with it? And especially vis-a-vis identity. I mean, your parents aren't there to, to be supporting you. You're in LA, so there's probably other Persians that you you could uh, you know know and, and find some solace in. But but did you uh, go through a period where you were angry that you were of Iranian background, or that you you know you wanted to disassociate? Well, there, it wasn't that I wanted to disassociate because I really love the Iranian culture. I love it so much. It's such a rich culture, right? So it's not that I wanted to disassociate so much as there was a period of time where we were just kind of hiding it, you mm. know, and we were trying to like not let the world know uh, because it was dangerous. Mm. It really was yeah. dangerous. But that being said, it was difficult, you know, psychologically, and I, I'll try not to go into too much analysis here as a psychologist analyzing myself. Um, it does cause you to become, uh, you know, uh, it does provo- provoke a kind of fear of abandonment. Let's put it that way. When I left Iran, I never thought I would never go back, right? Mm. That was. I did actually go back in 1990 one time, and it was shocking. Like I was so shocked at what had happened to the country. But um, it's it's sad if you leave your home and you never get to actually go back to mm. your home, mm-hmm. right? It's pretty sad. So I think one of the things that made a lot of us, I guess, first-generation Iranians in the U.S., become closer to each other was that we had lost our home. And there was no going back for us at that Mm -hmm, time. Much mm -hmm. later, maybe 10 years, 20 years later, some of us went back. 
but it wasn't the same Iran, right? right? We did never, we never got to live the same Iran. Do you use that experience, that experience of uh, uh, displacement or um, a form of exile or um, homelessness uh, in your practice? Would would that become helpful later on in terms of dealing with patients or folks who come to you? You know, that's an interesting question. I guess in the sense that, I mean, like the, the when I deal with mental health issues, mostly I'm, ta- I'm dealing with and I'm treating parents of, of children with disabilities, right? And in some ways, it's funny because there's this beautiful poem that a parent of a child with autism has written, which is called uh, something like Coming to Holland. It's, it's about them you know, planning their entire life, thinking that they're going to go to on a trip to Italy. And then when their child is born, it's not Italy. It's a completely different country, right? It's a very different mm. place when you have a child with a disability. It's not all of your plans are different now. All of your plans, right? Mm. So when I came here thinking I'm going to go to high school and then I'm going to go to college and I'm going to go back to Iran, my family was in Iran. So obviously it's similar in that sense because you do feel displaced, whether it's you've lost your home or it's you've lost the vision that you had for your child and your future. Mm. Similar, right? And so, yeah, I mean, all experiences that we have that increase our empathy, I guess, uh, are helpful when you're a psychologist, when you're working with other people's mental health issues. I will say that a lot of us in those early years experienced quite a bit of anxiety. Um, There was a phase where Iranians were being deported. And so when we were in class, you know, they would come into these very big classes, that was about a year or so, and they would pull out Uh, by name, call out people that we knew, you know, Mm. friends of ours whose visa had run out, who were were there not with the right type of visa. And uh, they they were, that was it. That was the last time you saw them. And so there was a lot of anxiety going on. And I guess that helped us become stronger people and become uh, more able to cope with difficulty. I'm really glad you brought up the the mental health piece because it's it's somewhere I wanted to go with you because you not only um, are you known for this for for your work in autism and the center that you founded et cetera but um, you continue to be out there actually you're in social media now and you've got this Ask Doreen page and um, yeah. uh, where you do tend to to talk a fair bit about mental health and I was um, which resonates with me a lot of what you what you deal with you you have this advice about depression anxiety unhealthy belief patterns and for yeah. example you did a post where you explained. Uh, and I'm quoting here, two cognitive distortions that are related are magnifying the negative and minimizing the positive. Two sides of the same coin, you say. And this, I mean, I'm sure for a lot of people um, listening, uh, this is something that they can relate to. But certainly I can relate to that uh, in my own life, even in just in social media. You know, I'll, I'll magnify the one negative comment and minim- minimize the 100 the positive ones if, if they're surrounding it, right? How do you fight those tendencies in your own life? Oh, it's so amazing you bring this up, Gian. Yes, thank you for mentioning my 
social media it's i'm on all of the different yeah instagram uh tiktok whatever ask dr doreen and it started out being just parents writing in and asking questions about for their kids which i love to do i've been doing you know as i mentioned to you we have a show called autism live which i did just an hour ago and that has i've been doing for 11 years and it's really just answering questions but then i started to you know for me I, two of the, I guess, mental issues that control us more than others are anxiety and depression. And they're two sides of the same coin, if you think. I mean, in fact, the medication that treats anxiety and depression is the same. It's mm. one medication. It's for depression or anxiety. And because really anxiety is kind of the fear of the future and depression is sadness about the past, which is sort of interesting. But the, the, I started to talk about some of these things and the more I started to talk about them and I'm not done, I'm, st I'm still just kind of delving into depression now on, on the various um, posts on social media. But as I started to talk about them, they were a really good reminder to me because I hadn't talked about these things for a few years. And as I, they were, they reminded me so much so that in everyday life, I constantly catch myself, like literally constantly. And it's a habit, right? The more you, like through life and my life, the last 35 something years was as CEO of a big company, you learn to be a problem solver. And the way that you solve problems is that you find patterns and you predict what is going to happen. And those abilities to predict help you get, get ahead of the game, okay? Mm. And as humans, we do this. We predict things because it produces a sense of safety. A lot of times we predict the wrong thing. <laughs> and that's when those cognitive distortions come into play, right? Mm. We predict the worst thing that could possibly mm -hmm. happen because we think that's going to make me feel prepared. Mm. It doesn't. Yeah, it's a defense all, mechanism, right? It doesn't, right? All it does is it makes you nervous between now and when the actual thing occurs. But why do we, te why do we minimize the positive? I mean, why? Just just because we are the as you said earlier you gave a great example when a negative thing happens it really has a huge impact on us mm -hmm. so there's a natural propensity in our brain to think the negative's going to happen the positive's not going to happen just my luck look at all the statements we have in life right oh it's murphy's law that could be my luck right mm. the bad stuff is but that, that's, that's, why I'm, that's why i'm asking why is that our natural inclination <laughs> i mean why don't we go oh but i've got all these positive things i mean you know why, why do we have to work at the positive part because that, certainly my natural inclination is to go to the negative well so that's exactly why we have like you know we talk about people being people who either see the glass half full or the glass half right, empty. Right. Some people are actually the type that do see the positive quite a bit, right? But life is hard. There's challenges. If there weren't challenges, we really wouldn't be learning, growing, right? I mean, I'm a strong believer that every challenge is a gift. And when you get these gifts, you learn how to overcome them. Mm. And until you do, they're going to keep coming back in your life. 
But so the, the whole concept of not being able to see the positive is just something that is over the course of time we learn because there are these challenges. But there are now a lot of exercises. I was reading the other day, someone has this thing that they do, which I love, which is every morning they wake up and the first thing they do is they list something they're grateful for. So I do a little bit more than that. I actually list a bunch of stuff that I'm grateful for and all the things that I'm going to do today that I'm very excited about. Mm. Believe me, it's really interesting. If you write them down, the impact on your day is tremendous. Mm. Because as you're writing down the wonderful, exciting things that you're going to do today, you automatically start to put a positive spin on things that might have been negative in your head. For example, later today, I'm actually going to be flying to San Francisco and it's not necessarily a trip I was looking forward to. I got a call from a contractor and I have to go there, deal with a, uh, one of the properties of my kids that has an issue, right? Okay. So in, in general, that's a negative thing. But when I wrote it down, I wrote that I'm flying on this particular airline that I really love. And they're really nice to you when you fly. And it's actually a pretty peaceful time when I get there. And I'm going to watch a show that I like on the flight. And so all these positive things come into your writing. And even though it seems like it's not automatic, like, okay, so you forced yourself to write these things. Uh, in the global scheme, they actually produce a positive yeah, environment yeah. in your mind. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm sure I've said this on this program before, and I'll, you know, I'll say it every show if I can because I'm such a believer in it. But I, I've come to really learn and believe that um, every day is a choice. You wake up and and you can choose to. Uh, I always say I could meet someone for thirty seconds and tell them ten reasons why they're having the worst day ever, or ten reasons why they've got, you know, everything to be grateful for. It's 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 a choice ultimately, no matter what cir- what circumstance you're in. Um, when we when you talk about cognitive distortions, tell me about all or nothing thinking. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's a great one, isn't it? So all or nothing. So we never think that there's a gray area. It's either I'm going to, you know, it's all good or all bad. And we don't realize, no, those are not the only two circumstances in the universe. It could be somewhere in the middle and it could be perfectly fine, right? So um, that's another example of these distortions that go through our mind. What's very interesting to me, Jean, is as you go through all of the, the various distortions, you really start to, for me, it was the first time that I really started to understand what it means when, uh, you know, our gurus or people who are very spiritual, they teach you to be in the present, hmm. right? They t- everybody tells yes. you, like, you know, try to be in the present. Yes. And you always w- wonder, what does that actually mean, right? <laughs> what does it mean to be in the present? Does that mean that I should sit here and just kind of look around and describe the things that are going on around me and so on. What it actually means is to stop trying to predict, stop allowing your mind to go to the future hmm. or the past, be in this moment. And the reason is because you, when you go to the future or the past, those thoughts are the ones, those cognitive distortions, thoughts are what lead to these issues of of depression and anxiety. Mm. It's always thoughts. 
if you're not thinking about the future or past and you're just in the moment, you're not going to experience those things. Mm. And it's very difficult. It's not an easy practice. But what if you're thinking of the future in a past? What if you're thinking, I get to go on my favorite airline where they treat me well? Is that That's still... Great. That's great. But on, if you do that, I promise you, unfortunately, most of us have such little control over running thoughts <laughs> that you start with a thought and before you know it, it turns into something else, right? right? right. We were able to focus. That's why it's good to meditate, obviously, because you get practice to stay on a thought. But the bottom line is just getting into the practice of you know, I'm sure you do as I do. I have a million thoughts of in my head about the next call, the next afternoon, this, that, all the things that are. And if you ultimately, one part of those types of things is going to make you anxious. It's not really just about negative things that could, that are actually coming at you, right? Mm -hmm. It's like, it's also about your own performance. Like you might, you know, how am I going to do? Right. How is this going right. to be? How's that? And all of those thoughts are what spiral out of control. And if you are even for five minutes, even for one minute, it's very hard to do this for one minute, just actually sit and not think. That is the kind of thing that produces ongoing peace. That's why things like music and those types of things are so amazing because they actually do remove you from your run-on thoughts, which are where the trouble comes. It's great to talk to you. Uh, you're so um, you're impressively um, cultured in the sense that you, as somebody who came at 15 years old, I was once told that uh, I wasn't once told. I actually know this. This is uh, and and it's been borne out a few times. Linguists have, have, have confirmed this for me that it's usually the age of 12 that if you um, switch from if you if you learn a new language or switch your language uh, to a new language at the age of twelve or thereafter, you'll have you're likely to have an accent. Um, now I know you did boarding school in England, so you had a little head start and stuff because you're very you're very American sounding for somebody who didn't actually grow up in 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 the states. But I know that you're also still um, quite Persian. You have a lot of Persian friends. Uh, you married a German man at some point and had kids that are still brought up quite Persian. Uh, I wanted to ask if you can as a psychologist and if you were to generalize and these are certainly generalizations um in terms of the diaspora in terms of the persians you know say in california what would you say is a significant issue that the persian community needs to deal with in terms of the feedback that you get um as a psychologist and, and the dr doreen page etc you know it's interesting i um i don't i I don't know that so the Persian community as a whole is struggling with one issue here. There are different generations. I think the older generation is definitely dealing still with uh, the hope of an Iran that they remember, that that definitely exists. Um, there's a whole generation of folks that were you know, well off in Iran and came here and are struggling financially. So that exists. Um, there's a very big cultural shift between the old Iranian generation and the kids who were born and raised here. Mm -hmm. So that I know is an issue. It's uh, one of my uh, good friends is Dr. Azita Sayan, and she has her own show on following. And she mainly talks about sex related issues. Mm. 
and her population of uh, audience is all Iranian, right? And so there's there's a I'm sure there's a huge cultural. I mean, I have friends Jean who've talked to me who are my age, and I will be sixty next year, so older population. But they will at, they will tell me things like, "Oh my God, my adult child has uh, come to the conclusion that he is gay." Mm-hmm. And it's such a big no-no, you know. It's such a big, difficult trauma for them to accept and tolerate. So, it's a lot, you know. We we still have a lot of the kind of old conservative beliefs mm-hmm. hanging over us, living in a society. I mean, especially California, right, which is pretty liberal. And so, those two things are conflicting. I think for any. Uh, first or second generation uh, people from a coming from a conservative country, mm. that's going to be an issue. It's funny. It's funny, funny. We've had a couple of um, psychologists on the show who've pointed out that um, uh, I always find it fascinating that that the culture that you migrate with is is oftentimes, unfortunately, people stay within that moment of the culture. So so you have a dynamic where people who came from Iran 30, 40 years ago, who may have sort of conservative values, are now more conservatives living in California or Toronto than those in Iran, where socially things might have moved forward, notwithstanding the regime, et cetera. But, you know, um, but, but yeah. the, the Iranians here are still practicing what was the, the norm 40 years ago. Ago, you know, so you, there's a disconnect with um, where those coming more recently are actually more progressive in some ways. It's very strange. That is very interesting. I'm actually, you're. I think you're right. I mean, I've met some Iranians who have recently left, and they are much, much more liberal than I thought they would be coming out of the regime there. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Like cohabitation, for example, um, is is a norm now in Tehran. But, you know, in the diaspora communities, it still would be a bit of a no no for some Persian families, you know, and uh, um, it, it is it's a great pleasure speaking to you. I hope you'll come back. Uh, it's, oh, it's, absolutely. I really enjoyed my time with you. It's it's wonderful. Also learning from you. Um, <laughs> you know, my husband is from the Toronto area. And I love to see that your program is so well received in, in that region. It's fantastic. It's it's wonderful. Well, more reason you should come visit us in Canada. Thank you for doing this. Thank you for the work you've done around autism. And thank you for the education that you give all of us. And I hope to talk to you again soon. Merci. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. Dr. Doreen Grand-Pichet, an Iranian-American psychologist. Um, she is the founder of CARD, the Center for Autism and Related Disorders. Uh, you can check her out on um, various platforms, uh, asking Dr. Doreen any questions you want. Dr. Doreen Grand-Pichet joined us from Los Angeles, California today. Back on for Smart Pega and Groovy Shia. Dr. Doreen Grand Pichet. Don't you feel like you want to just um, spend the next few hours asking her advice on how do I think more positively? Please explain that, how yeah. I. I want her to do a behavioral 
analysis on me <laughs> and just kind of give me, you know. She probably would if you know nice enough. Yeah, I, I mean, first of all, um, I'm so grateful to her and, and thankful that this person took the initiative on that, mm -hmm. on the Autism Center and, and, yeah. and how far things have come in the last 30 years in the West. And sadly, how far things re remain, uh, as well. she said, retarded and in, in you know, in behind that is, uh, in um, in Iran mm -hmm. when it comes to autism. Um, which, as I say, we know from from the case of one of our team members talking about it, how there's just isn't the education, isn't the resources, isn't the the treatment that um, that people might be able to expect here. Um, so grateful that she's you know involved been involved in that but just as a psychologist talking about um that part of it emphasizing the negative and, mm -hmm. and uh, not yeah. not looking at the positive and uh it really resonates for me me too i mean uh, that was probably one of my favorite parts of the conversation and immediately i was thinking of myself and saying you know i do that i yeah. can relate to that and i i the part where she said, you know, are you a glass half full or empty person? I still can't figure that out about myself. <laughs> I don't know. Sometimes I'm one way and sometimes the other. But she seemed to be saying that we all emphasize the negative. Yeah. To a certain, like the, that it's a, that that's an impossible kind of, it's an ongoing battle. Mm -hmm. Because it, and it comes from fear. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. For me, the part that she was talking about being in the moment, in the present. Yes. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and I, uh, it's the really it's the most difficult task that human can do yeah it's really hard and it's like it's the way to uh, like um, survive the life but it's very hard it really is yeah. yeah it really is the running thoughts that that i was like that's every moment of my life like running thoughts it's you know you start and to think all of thing. the problems as she she notes all of the problems that we have like psychologically mm -hmm. that we deal with have to be uh, have to do with anticipating the future yeah what's yeah. going to happen to me next how am i going to you mm -hmm. know even when you're it's something from the past that's triggering it you're still worried about the future yeah, right yeah, exactly yeah. <laughs> i always wonder i i feel like we're getting worse at that as a society as worse at living in the present you know? It's because there's so many things happening at once. Like you, you have access to a million different things at any given time. And yeah, and there's such an emphasis placed on sometimes capturing the moment that you're not actually in mm -hmm. the moment. <laughs> oh, know? I'm guilty of that. You know, like there's a there's a famous comedy routine where the guy says, uh, he's like, um, uh, it, it's not a famous, I mean, it's more recent, but it was uh, um, guys like, uh, Jesus comes down and there's like three people in front of him and he's like I am Jesus and the, and they go oh my god it's Jesus uh, Jesus is right in front of me and they're and they're tweeting like they're like Jesus and he's like but I'm right here you can speak to me I am yeah. Jesus and and they're like oh my god Jesus is speaking to me I'm like they're, they're just like looking at their phones and I was on a I went on one of these boat trips mm -hmm. um, a couple of weeks ago in the Toronto, people who has visited Toronto know that we have this a beautiful harbor and yep. you can get on one of these boats for mm -hmm. three or four hours. So a, n a number of people, you can rent a boat and have a little uh, dinner party mm -hmm. or whatever, you know. So somebody, it was somebody's birthday and they, you know, and there was 15 of us, right. you know, uh, in the Toronto Harbor on a weekday night, you know, it was very beautiful. And, and I, mean, I don't know if it's because they're Iranian, I think that might make it even <laughs> worse, but... I'm telling you, the entire time, 
like the entire time like that without like there was no breaks the entire time people were taking photos mm-hmm. the whole time mm. and i was like we're we're on the water we there, there wasn't even a moment to enjoy like yeah. there's the skyline there's the water there's sundown like no it was uh, now let's all take a photo over here now let's take a selfie here now let's do photos and that's what I mean by the the culture of not not appreciating the present yes. uh, I mean certainly when you're the smartphones are around there's yes. just like there's no there's seemingly no appetite or incentive to just like breathe and sit on a boat and look at the you know i mean (laughs) i I know there's all kinds of folks who are good at this who might be at a college right now and and who are able to live in the present or who've done meditation advanced meditation Mm -hmm. and can sit in front of a wall i've never been able to do that but but uh i'm anticipating the future too much and freaking out about it but but this idea that the entire fucking time on the boat it was like and who's gonna look at these pictures how many pictures do we need okay we must have taken ten thousand pictures (laughs) that's right and you are exactly the kind of person who would have done that right? exactly so let me let me defend you know the other side for a uh-huh. moment um i take a lot of pictures like i, I mean a lot i have like ten thousand photos on my phone right now mm. as we're speaking um from just this past week no <laughs> <laughs> i mean maybe the last two weeks yeah. but um you know i grew up with my dad who does photography and mm. that's a major hobby of his so there were always cameras around and when i was a kid you know he was always documenting me and my sister and first steps and first this and all of that so i grew up with you know photos and things like that around all the time and as i got older i started to really appreciate that documentation of these moments um, especially mm. with you know some family members who are no longer with the, us okay. or, you know situations sure. like that so how many how much documentation do you need but here's the thing so how now, about 5 minutes worth of documentation that you can live with forever some photos like fuck four hours i'm Fair telling enough. you i'm not saying you know, there you was need no four it was unrelenting then. and i'm t- no one needs these photos I mean, no one cares people they each need to take their photos right <laughs> oh the group photos and the have you been to a persian mahmoudi lately yes where the, all the women line up and then the men, yes. it's first of all, it's like gender breakdowns and then <laughs> and then there's other photos. Like, it's just like the whole thing's a photo session. Yeah. Oh, we like yeah. our photos. What's wrong yeah, with that? Yeah, I can't, I can't, I, you know. I mean, I've never been good at this, even in my, with my family at mm-hmm. Christmas time and stuff. I'm like, mom, do we have to? But see, to? Th- those are the moments. Of you course, so you, do, that's photos. right. So what do you do? You take five minutes and take some pictures. Sure. I mean, the, what was this obsession with constantly no, documenting I, every moment that, so much so that you don't know the moments you don't appreciate the moment no i think in in excess it's not good for sure but i i'm also one of those people who i think you know i have friends of mine or even family members who are like oh my god stop taking photos and then two weeks later i'll post something or i'll send them and they're like oh my god this is amazing i'm so glad you took it and i'm like yeah when i was taking it you were yelling at me for taking these (laughs) photos yeah (laughs) you know what drives me nuts drives me nuts people at who at a concert Mm -hmm. film the concert oh that i hate (laughs) I'm kind of like fucking to watch the, you know, mm-hmm. and f- frankly, being on stage, you know, and watching people I, like it sucks. I, I be, I've been in that position. I'm sure you yeah. have, Shia. Um, I remember seeing Bjork a few oh. years ago and it was a big outdoor festival show. But because Bjork's so cool and the audience wants Bjork to like them, I guess, mm-hmm. you know, they made an announcement, a few thousand people, and they made an announcement beforehand and said, Bjork would prefer that you don't use your smartphones, don't wow. you? And it was amazing. It was like an old, like people watching a concert instead of like three people. 
So I've seen people, I've been to concerts where people hold up an iPad. I've seen Like that. in front of you, they're holding an iPad. First of all, recording the concert for, uh, you know, what? Yeah. I guess to story it on Instagram. I don't know. But blocking the vision and mm-hmm. then and then like the, just the whole time, it's like, dude, the concert is happening right now. Yeah. What are you, you're missing it. You're just shooting it. Yeah. And who's going to watch it later? I'm a big fan of places that say, you know, you, you have to put your phone away and things like that for performances and things like that. That I really appreciate. Yeah. All right. <laughs> yeah. I bet you Ali Bernam Bertier, uh sometimes designs weddings where they have to put away their... Oh, I'm sure. You get one wedding photographer. I love it. I've been to one of these mm-hmm. where they say, you know, put away your gadgets. Yeah. Just enjoy the night. Mm-hmm. We've got a photographer who will take pictures. That's the way yeah. to do it. We'll see. Let me get him on the phone. He's... You got him? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> 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 and he's frustrated at this conversation, no doubt. Um, Smart Pega, uh, Groovy Shia, thank you. Let's get to our next feature guest. My next guest today is one of the world's leading designers who's dedicated his life to creating and implementing the most luxurious weddings, palaces, castles, and private and social events across the globe. Ali Behnam Bakhtiar is a prominent Iranian-French architect and the founder of Ali Bakhtiar Designs with multiple offices in different parts of the world. Ali was born in Tehran and comes from two aristocratic Iranian dynasties. His family left for France after the Islamic Revolution. He grew up in Paris, uh, ended up majoring in architecture, interior design, and fashion, and went to École des Beaux-Arts, uh, Parsons, the American University of Paris, and Esmod. He has worked with prominent personalities in the fashion world, such as John Galliano at Dior, Karl Lagerfeld at Chanel. Ali had a significant transformation from the fashion world to architecture and set up Ali Bakhtiar Designs in 1997 with a focus on designing top-end private houses and residences. In 2003, he made his way into the world of luxurious weddings, and his clients regularly now include royal families and celebrities. He's also the founder of Ali of the Ali Behnam Bakhtiar Foundation, in which he donates a portion of his earnings to the people in need. And right now, Ali Behnam Bakhtiar joins me from Slovenia today. Hello, sir. Hi, how are you? I know you live in, or sometimes you're in Dubai, sometimes you're in Paris. It's any guess where you are for any, so t- so today it's Slovenia? Yeah, yeah. I live, my base is in Dubai and south of France, in Saint-Jean-Cap-Ferrat, but uh, yeah, now I'm Slovenia. It depends on where the projects take us, actually. I- I'm guessing you have really a project like- in Slovenia right now? Yeah, we, I've got projects in Slovenia as well, and I started doing this like AB residences. So it's called AB residence that uh, we have uh, quite around the world. So we launched uh, in Slovenia, Ljubljana, and also outside of Ljubljana. They're like they're like um, atypic type of properties that that I purchase and I decorate them, and then uh, it's like a chain. I've created sort of like chain of residences. So we have them in Slovenia and Ljubljana and also in Istanbul and Athens and Mykonos. And so basically we're growing, you know, so one of the reasons why I'm here now is for this, but also because we're we're actually working on a very big, uh, big event coming up uh, in spring. I mean, your company is so big right now and the kind of projects you do, but do you feel, and we'll get into it, I, I'm going to ask you this, some about some details, but do you feel like you it's still important for you to be there when you have a big event or a new project that's in construction? 
No, no, hundred percent. I'm on top of all, all my projects. So uh, there is no way that, uh, you know, like we get projects come on board and I'm not part of it. Most of the projects that are quite, I mean, you know, like that are quite uh, large in size or in detail or in technology or like in design, I always implement them. All the designs passes by me. I'm very lucky and really blessed that I've got a great team that has been working with me for the last 25 years. So I'm really happy. It's like a family, actually. So um, it's, it's very important for me to make sure that the vision of what we have initially uh, comes through at the end of the project. And that's why I'm so involved into the whole process of the work. And most of the time, sometimes as well, like, you know, like when we finish a project, the client is very happy. But then uh, when I come and I see it and I'm like, no, you know, like we need to change this. We need to change this. It's not according to what should be. And sometimes they're like, no, 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 we're okay with this. And I'm like, no, but it should be changed because then you're going to see the, the difference after. <laughs> it sounds like you're suitably particular for the kind of um, uh, high-end work you do. So let, let me let me start with some a couple of general questions, which is whether you, first of all, I mean, whether you just step out of your life at some point and, and see where you've gotten to. There was a recent article that came out a few months ago about you, and it was entitled, Meet the Man Behind Europe's Most Magnificent Events. Um, Ali, how do you how do you feel about being known as the conductor that throws the most lavish and impressive events in the world? To be honest with you, I really don't think about it. These are not things that I that I that I concentrate on. Uh, what I what is important is for me is is actually working on uh, coming up with like you know like new designs and new creative things. Uh, I'm I'm not so much into like, you know, like the highlight and the fame and the, you know, like all of these things. I, I and I never was and I don't think it's something that is so important for me. What is important for me is to is to create the relationship that I have with my clients. And uh, hence for all of these years, you know, like we we work with a lot of like high end level clientele and we, sh we you know we, we never went out to have press or or any of these things because with with that with that level of clientele that when you're working with like people don't really want everything to be public right like 90 95 percent of our projects we we don't ever show them right you know we don't even post them or like nobody sees them so uh i'm very honored of course i'm very uh, uh and i'm humbled but in general i'm a very humble person so uh i like to get my hands dirty on projects and and get the works done you know, and that makes me proud. You are described as, quote, making the impossible possible. So <laughs> so in, in that field, uh, what, what does that mean to you? That's true, actually, <laughs> because I have no limits. Like um, when I when I visualize something or when I want to create something, even if it's like really challenging and a lot of people are sometimes are telling me it's never going to happen, you can't make it, we can't make it. And I'm like, no, we can't, you know, like I don't believe in I don't believe in limitations. I believe in like you set your own limitations in your life and in your work. So uh, I always looked and taught outside of the box. And I was really blessed as well as a child because uh, my parents always brought us to like, you know, like art and culture was very predominant in our family and into my education, especially as a, you know, and so since I was, since I was a child and I used to go with my parents to museums and they used to explain to me, you know, like what is this and all the different things. And so I, I understood that basically from a young age that whatever you want to create, you can. So there's no limitations on what can, what can be created. It's only your imagination and what you want to achieve in your life 
that basically can set you on a level on, or on a, on a sort of like a path or a vision of what you want to have into your life. But I can imagine there's people listening to this around the world right now who, whilst being impressed with what with what you have done and accomplished, would say, well, yeah, of course you can accomplish things if you have the resources, if you have the money. How, how much of making the impossible possible um, it has to do with having the, the resources to be able to do it? Or, or is it about creative vision? It's not about the money, actually, at all. Uh, when I started working, I, I I went I was living in India for a couple of years as well, and I was going to like Jaipur into different workshops or in Makrana and like marble inlay factory, like you know like workshops, and I was list sitting there trying to understand you know like what kind of like uh, material can be used, and and they were like you can't mix marble with for instance like with metal, you can't mix this with that, and then I was like why not like who says no you know mm-hmm. like why why not I want to try it. So then I started trying these things. So and then uh, and then it worked, you know, like like a lot of things like, you know, in those days they were like, no, you can't do that. And now, you know, like everybody's doing it. So uh, I think it's not about the money. Of course, when it comes to very large projects, uh, money is important to be able to create when you have an event for 10,000 people. I mean, of course, you know, you need to have the financial support behind it to, to right. be able to deliver. But we, when I started doing these things, I started like, you know, like even the events uh, that we started doing. So actually some of the most beautiful events that I've done are the, are, were the humblest budgets mm. that we had. You know, sometimes it was even a party for a friend of mine or some sort where, you know, in the foundation where, where, where we actually, uh, you know, like we created an event for people who couldn't afford to do it. And it was the most beautiful uh, event. So it's not about it's not about the money. Money, of course, is important because you need to, you know, like when you when you're building, you know, from scratch palaces, of course, you need to have the money. Right. But uh, I, I believe that it's it's the use of material and it's the use of like what you can create that makes makes the wow effect or makes something mm. that is different mm. enough out of the box, because otherwise, uh you know, you can have a lot of money and, and you know, like you can give it to everybody and it, they, not necessarily they're going to create something that is extraordinary. I want to get to your uh, personal story and how you've you've become who you've become. But but um, just on this question of, of of how you create that out of the box vision or where 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 you even begin with it. So I, w- I was thinking of taking a concrete example on the on the larger scale of the events you do when you're doing a very, very high profile wedding extravaganza, say sometimes it can be over a few days, it can be multiple ceremonies, it can be different settings, different dress codes. Where do you even begin with a project like that? Well, uh, initially, basically, what is important is that you, we sit with the client. You have to understand the vision of the client, and and most of the times they don't really know. So you have to you have to use psychology as well. I think it's very important because you have to understand what the client wants without them being able to express it, mm. which is very important. And that's really literally ninety percent of the of the time. And sometimes they come up with some concept. They're like, okay, I like like white flowers, or I like this, or I like that. But in reality, that's not really what they want. So um, I think it's very important out of experience and out of all those years, it's it's really important to have the sense of like understanding through the words of what your client your client really wants. And then once you grasp that, then then you know I just start visualizing what they really like and I start doing sketches and I and I start presenting to them different concepts according to what they I think that they want and what also I would want them to have. 
That's fascinating. I mean, that you have to basically do a psychological profile. How long does it take you usually to to figure Ten out? Ten minutes. <laughs> really, to figure out what they what they want, and they don't even know that they want. Yeah, yeah, yeah. no, it's it, you know out of experience, and you know, like out of doing a lot of clients and everything. More or less, yeah. Normally, it, it doesn't take that long because it's something that I understand, and that's and also like I become very like 99% of my clients like you know we keep in touch all of this all of these years and uh now sometimes I'm literally doing their children's wedding you know like and I was like oh my god I'm not that old you know like I'm like <laughs> <laughs> so it's, it's like going to another generation and we we try to always uh I mean it's not with all, no, of, of course not with all the clients but with most of the clients where we can I try to basically involve them as much as possible in the process because it's a cool process you know, you do a design and then there's sampling and then they see the whole process and it's nice because then we can talk about it. And and I uh, I realized that it's very important. If a situation is stressful in general, uh, it's the way you handle the situation that makes a difference. Mm. Uh, it's not it's not the situation. The situation, any situation can become very stressful and, and or any situation can become very pleasant. It's the way that you deal with situations that have I you, think makes it different. Have you ever gotten it wrong? Like, was there ever a situation where the princess said no blue and you <laughs> or, or something? No, there ever I, a- of course. Of course. I mean, we uh, not blue. I mean, not to that extent of like going, <laughs> going wrong so, so much. But like, you know, like we had, I don't know, like let's say like 5,000 people and suddenly 6,000 people showed up you know, uninvited right, right, and we right, had to accommodate, right. you know, for like, so last minute, they had like 20 minutes. So out of, of course, like sometimes you can, sometimes you can't, you know, but out of experience, I learned that basically you need an event, especially in events, you need to have plan A, B and Z and, and X, 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 you know, followed. So, uh, and that's through experience that you learn. And also what is important is to be able to say no. Mm. So to be able to say, I'm sorry, no, it's not going to happen. This is what it was supposed to be, and that's what it is. So, and I think that uh, my clients understand me very clearly. I'm very strict at my work, and I'm very firm and at uh, at, at what I create and and the whole process of it because it's very important for everything to go smoothly, for everything to be very clear. You can't have any, you know, exclamation points mm. on anything. Mm. Because then that exclamation point can turn up into something that, you know, that is unwanted in the future. So I think it's very, it's vital to have everything very clear. And, uh, and so basically both parties know, know exactly what I need to do, what I will deliver and what they will get. And I think once, once this is, once this is, I think this, and this is rule number one. And I think once this is done, then everything else can be play, can be fun. Hmm. because then you both know what who has to deliver what and what's happening and of course there are challenges but i think it's very important to be very transparent with your client all, at all times which we are but also not to get them involved into the headache of the process because that's why they hire you so they you know there's a fine line between what to be what to be said and what not to be said take me back uh, ali to um uh, to your journey because i mean part of the reason you're on the show is that you're not just a a famous um, global designer uh, uh, and a star in that field, but a kid from Tehran who was born there before the um, before the revolution in the in the mid seventies. I know you come from a very arts interested family. Uh, your brother, of course, is a famous painter. We've had on the show. How artistic was your upbringing? Was it always clear that you were going to have a career in a creative field? Not at all. No, uh, but uh, art was very very predominant in my family uh since a very young age so uh 
my father is a painter as well as for his hobbies. So basically, we were we were painting. My mother as well is very arts, you know, involved. Uh, so painting, sculpture classes, and again, it was play. It was not forced, you know. I, and I think that's what is very important. Since a very young age, wherever we used to travel, my parents used to take us to take me like to like different museums or or art exhibitions or galleries. And it, they used to explain it to me in a way that, look, you know, this is this painting about, you know, how this was created. And so they used to take me through the whole process of it. And it was so interesting for me because I was like, wow, so basically you can create whatever you want on anything. Mm. And when, you know, like I had a blank page and like, you know, like they were like, whatever you want on this page, you can actually create. And I was like, wow. So then therefore, whatever you want in your life, you know, so. I think poetry, art, and it was very, very predominant in, in, in my upbringing, luckily. And, uh, and I thank my parents for that. And, and I think that's why also it was, it was something that was quite important to be able to, to have that background. And Iran was, it, it's, it's fabulous. I mean, it's like the culture that we have in this country and, and the richness that we have and in, in the, into the art and into the culture and the history, which is just, which is just you know, it's out of this world. And and my one of the biggest inspiration that I have in any projects now I'm working on a very big project that we're working on a private island and actually all the inspiration comes from Iran. So for me, uh, being you know like being Iranian, uh, I'm very proud of it, and I think uh, it has brought to me so much uh, you know like the culture and the art of it that uh, and it keeps on feeding me. It's it 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 feeds me all the mm. time, and I'm really blessed about that. What what was the um, migration to France like for you, as a as a little kid amidst a revolution in Iran that had an obvious immediate impact on your prominent family? What was that like for you? It was a discovery, and um, again, I was really blessed because my parents are very uh, they have a very positive mindset in general. You know, like they—they—they're not the—you the, know, like they're not the typical type that—that that would say that. Oh my God, blah blah blah. We lost this. We lost that. It wasn't like that at all. It was like, okay, that's a reality. So now let's just live it. You know, like let's let's do the best out of it. And we did. You know, like it was. A, you know, of course, if you go through a revolution, it's hard. But I was really blessed that I come from a background that basically. Um, the education that that I got and that we got in our family uh, is it was very important because I think to have your feet on the ground and to be very humble, regardless of where your background is and 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 so on and so forth, mm -hmm. I think it's very important and it's vital. And I think this is one of the reasons why I think that um, we managed to be you know like to live a very happy life. I mean, everybody has upside downs, obviously, but to to not live in the drama so much mm. but to be able to be more into the creative part of life and and this is regardless of money you know like everybody had to go and work obviously but i think it's important to to concentrate on the creativity and trying to be on the positive to look at the positive things in life versus the negative things because the negative part of it are it's so vast that if you start thinking about it it just you just drown you know so I think in life is just it's just so important to just think about the positive things that what you have and count your blessings. Although I, although is. that that's that's um, 
I mean, that's that's hard for anyone, but it's harder, especially for a kid, I would think. I, I mean, how, you know, you come from this um, certain life and lifestyle in, in Iran and you're forced to move to France. How easy was it for you to integrate into being the French version of Ali Behnam Bakhtiar? You know, living in Iran and, and, and before the revolution, we always had, although like, we you know, like we had a very lavish life and everything, but our education was done in a way that we were, uh, like I remember I was a child and I wanted a glass of water. So I asked some of the people who were working and, but you know, like I was told like, no, if you want a glass of water, you go and you take it yourself. You know, like if one day, you know, like, so our education was, was differently because it was like, we were we we had our foot on the ground so it wasn't like although we had like you know a very lavish lifestyle but hence um it was very clear that if you want to succeed into your life and if you want to continue that you just need to go and work and basically establish your life in any way that you want you want to become an artist you can become an artist you want to become a doctor you can become a mm. doctor you want to become a painter whatever that you want to do but then you have to pursue it you have to learn from it so Coming with a background and a, and a mindset like that, I think it helped us. It helped me a lot because I came to Paris, uh, which I wasn't talking French. Obviously, I was talking English, but not French at that time. I was quite young, and uh, and the integration actually was a bit challenging. But um, my father used to tell me, and my mother as well. They were like, "Look at it and how you can create that experience." Huh. And and that really helped me because I was like, okay, then it's play, you know, like, so let me create whatever that I want to create out of hmm. this. And also, I think it's very important because as a child, I was always like, they were telling me that you can create whatever you want. And it's, it's basically the consequence of basically how you're going to manage uh, your life. Uh, you know, the outcome of that is is your mindset, is how you think about it, and, and basically how you do whatever you have to do. Mm. So I think I was really blessed to have that because that really helped me. And um, of course, it was difficult. It was, you know, it was very difficult. Suddenly, you know, out of the blue, you don't understand where you are. And, uh, you know, like, uh, like everybody. But I think I was really, we were really blessed of having that mindset that really helped us to get through that. Yeah, it sounds like your parents are pretty cool. I mean, that's a that's a very they are. <laughs> evolved very cool. evolved way to say it to your you know think of it as an experience. I mean, that's a um, that's a it's quite lovely actually. Tell me why yeah. um, you know your dad. You said did some painting as a hobby. Your bro your brother ends up going into that. Tell me what what drew you to fashion of all the arts because you begin um, professionally after going to school. You basically your big start is in fashion, working with Galliano, working with Lagerfeld, uh, found your own fashion brands uh, eventually what what did you love about fashion what I love about fashion is what I love in events is like you create something but it's, it's kind of a bit different because events carries you know like all elements but it's fast it's short you know like it's like it's like something that is just like you know like it's FMF so you just like uh, it's like immortal it's like you just create something and it's boom and it goes you know then it's like next um, for me, fashion was a bit like this at the beginning because I, I, I love to create uh, different designs. And again, that comes with you can create whatever that you want, you know, like on, on anything. So basically, if you want to create like any type of designs, you can. But you just have to have the knowledge for it. So um, I went and I studied architecture, interior design architecture and then interior design and uh, fashion as well. And uh, I loved fashion very, very much. It's something that I, that I, that I, and I was really, I mean, I was really in, like, you know, like focused on it. I loved uh, creating different collections all the time. 
Hence what I love in events as well. Because for instance, the interior design projects can take you a couple of years. So it's the same design that you, you know it's gonna take longer period. But events is something that in a couple of months you create it, you do it, and it's over. Next. That's actually what's what's interesting to me about where you how how your career has evolved. Because it seems like a paradox to me to a certain extent. Like on the one hand, when I think about architecture, when I think about interior design, when I think about what you what you studied and and what you did in terms, what you've done in terms of um, private homes and castles and palaces, it almost feels like that those are legacy pieces. You you're building something that necessarily you should expect is going to last hundreds of years or is going to be there. It's going to be an imprint on the landscape. Um, enchanting weddings and and big events feel like the exact opposite of that they're ephemeral they're gonna last one night and then everybody's gonna take it all down and get rid of the balloons and 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 clean the floors uh those are very very different missions how do you reconcile life is all about that's what life is all about and that's what that's what i i learned in in my life that basically nothing is nothing is forever so you create and you know you come in this world you live your life and you go hmm. and that's what i learned in my in my work as well and that's what i love to do what i'm doing because then you've got the, the interior design or architecture that is like it's it stays for a longer period mm-hmm. but then the, but then eventually either it's going to go as well one day we all go right so um and the events and fashion and everything is something that you just create and it's just keep it's like an it's like a flow of energy basically everything is vibration and everything is energy so it's just like the energy of what you create and what you put out and what you wanna what you wanna see basically, mm. and and I think this is what life is all about as well. You know, nobody knows what's you know like what's 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 tomorrow's gonna come or even in a, in a minute. And I think that's what I try to do in my creativity and in my work and uh, try to create and not to think that much. You know, I, I think people complicate so much their own lives and in their own work. Mm. You know, I, I think that we can all we can always think about things in a in a much more easier way. And and I think that human beings in general complicates uh, you know like life a bit more than it is. Sorry, how do, how do we complicate things? I mean, there's I'm, there's a million ways, but how how are you thinking? How are you thinking that we complicate things? It's all about I think I believe it's all about the vision of how you how you take any circumstance into your life mm. and how you act accordingly. I mean, issues and problems comes for everybody. Everybody has issues. Everybody has health issues or problems or money problem or this and that. But I think the outcome of that is how you deal with the with the issue. And if you see it as a problem or if you see it as an experience or if you see it as something that is just there and needs to pass and your mm. acceptance of it will will eventually make things easier to go. And I think that's what is important as well in life. You, you, Ali, you seem incredibly even keel and um, <laughs> almost... Um, um, brilliantly sort of yoda like about the 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 work that you're you're doing i mean i wouldn't have i i wouldn't have been surprised i've watched you in a couple of interviews so i know that that this is your tone but uh i don't think anybody would blame you if you were mercurial or engaging in histrionics i mean you're planning these huge events you've got big pressure you got big things to do is this really you all the time or do you get angry sometimes or can you do do you fire people on the spot i mean how do you deal with adversity no, I get angry. I get angry quickly, but I get I, I, I calm down as well, quickly as well. Uh, it's very important. I think that is very very important in life, especially when you do this kind of work, to to have your feet on the ground and to be really balanced and to be then to be able to 
to sort of like understand things and not get into situations. Mm. You know, you have to see you have to see them on the surface, deal with them, and let it pass, and and not to get into issues. You know, and and I think that's what is important. Just the best way that you can, whatever it is. Do you do you think your uh, magic touch? Um, when it comes to luxury events, big happenings, um, big ostentatious um, parties and, and events, do, do you think that that um, is um, aided and abetted by your lineage, that you have some kind of background in that? Let me just uh, tell people for, uh, just so we can be clear about, you know, your background, I mean, that comes from these Iranian dynasties. You're related to a, to the former Minister of War, uh, General Sardar Bakhtiar, to Empress Soraya Esfandiari Bakhtiari, the former Prime Minister Shapur Bakhtiar, of course, but you were also on your father's side uh, descended of the Qajar dynasty. Uh, does that pedigree that you have is that part of what you what leads you to understand how to create big luxury events do you think well i really believe in lineage not in the sense of like where you come from but i think that everybody comes from an ancestral lineage that i think is important to recognize so you have to recognize and understand where you come from it can be from any any type of background but I, I never take it into a sort of like a way as a sort of like a stand, you know, like show off or like ancestral way. I think it's important to understand and to be able to be, it actually makes me more humble. Hmm. My background obviously helps a lot because it gives me a heritage that I can use, but is that's not enough. You have to feed it. You have to learn. You have to feed yourself. Hmm. You have to culture yourself. You have to cultivate yourself. It's not enough about who you come, where you're coming from. It's important who you have to recognize and understand whom you're coming from and where you're coming from, regardless of how, what level you are. No, Just but like I'm, I'm talking about I'm talking about empathy, though. I'm talking about the fact that, or and and or or relating to these. I mean, when back to your the psychological profile you do of of your your clients and that in depth research that involves uh, trying to understand every client personally. Seems to me, if you're dealing with a king, you know, to really understand the king and their lifestyle and what they might want or need, it probably helps that you've had some. Um, association with that right rather than you know i mean if you had been a barista for most of your life and come from a um a family that owned a coffee shop would you be able to understand the king as well i, I don't know if i'm being reductive i'm actually ask, asking that actually it depends the, the, you know like coming like parents if, if, if your parents had coffee shops before if you if you culture yourself and if you i believe that if you culture yourself and you educate yourself and if you ha have that mindset that basically everything is possible if you're going to be impressed sitting in front of the king you know like you're not going to be able to handle these things properly uh like if, if that impressed like you know if you get impressed or if you get like you know like nervous about it yes you i don't think you can hmm. like i don't and not because of my background because of i am confident about my work and i'm confident about my own being and hmm. and what i know and what i can provide so I think your background, whatever it is, you have to accept it, acknowledge it. But I think that you have to work on yourself as a human being, regardless of your background, and to evolve yourself and to culture yourself and to learn. And I think that's why we come into this world, to to basically be the best version of whatever that we can be. And I think that's that's what is important. What, um, what does intimidate you? What intimidates Ali Behnam Bakhtiar? Uh, sufferings of people, like 
children ill sickness of like yeah like the, these type of things that intimidates me because i sometimes when i'm powerless on these things mm. i that intimidates me mm. but uh wealth and richness or things like this does not intimidate me it never did and it's not something that power power doesn't intimidate me but i think that people that are in need or like when i see like you know like parents children dying because of you know like not having medicine or food that intimidates me because i'm powerless of doing anything for it or if i can't then 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 that's that's what uh, makes me really upset that was a really interesting answer um wh where do you want to take this really interesting creative business that you have whether it's the the design whether it's the events um or whether it's even your work your continued work in fashion where where do you want to take all of that in the next uh decade or two i didn't think about this to be honest with you i never thought about it you don't think I'm of the future a person who plans for like uh for like decades and uh i try to live in the moment and uh, I always did. I never thought about like decades to come. That's so I think it's like I, I think in like in life has a sort of like a journey, and uh, and you are kind of responsible of that journey. So I, I have no idea to be honest with you. But That's... I'm really looking forward of what's gonna come next. Uh, and there's a David Bowie quote that's, that's like that, which is, uh, uh, I don't know where I'm going uh, in the future, but I know it's going to be interesting. Uh, <laughs> so, yeah, I uh, hope so. <laughs> uh, what, what are you, before I let you go, what, what, what are you most proud of in terms of your journey so far? I think to be Iranian and, uh, and basically for people to understand that, you know, like being Iranian, it's not what everybody thinks, you know, like, unfortunately, you know, like when you, when some of my clients are like, uh, where are you from? And then I'm like, I'm from Iran. And they're like, you know, they get like shocked, you know, sometimes they're like, how? I'm like, what do you mean how? <laughs> you know, like, why are you even asking how? Um, so I think it is is to actually educate that well as well, you know, like, uh, as much as possible people that basically for them to understand exactly who are Iranians and what mm. are Iranians and, you know, our culture and our, our background and our history. And, and, uh, and I think that's very important for me to, to, to work on that and to be able to create that. Ali Behnam Bakhtiar, it's been a great pleasure. I thank you so much for your time today. I, thank I, you so much. I, I hope the project in Slovenia is, um, I have no doubt it'll be as spectacular as the rest. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Talk to you again. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye-bye. Ali Behnam Bakhtiar, one of the world's leading designers. We reached Ali Behnam Bakhtiar in Slovenia today. And that is full time for Rook for today. Thank you so much for tuning in for all things Rook related, including how you can become a patron to support our program. Rookmedia.com is the destination. Rookmedia.com at Rookmedia.com or uh, at our YouTube site. You can see our documentary Talking to Persians London, which is now playing, now streaming near a computer near you. Check it out. Thanks to the amazing team who put this show together. Savvy Roham, talented Anahita, the fabulous Keon, Super Patty Sauce, Smart Pega, Aray Merdad, and Groovy Shaya. Thank you to all of you out there for supporting us and sharing our content. Please subscribe if you've not done so already. Let people know about Rook and Rook Media. And you can find me 
anytime on Instagram at Gian Gomeshi. Mizumashi. Mizumashi.